enter the creative world of my Jerome Marketing Explore a variety of trends in the creative landscape, getting insider knowledge and advice from the industry's best. Fjords is proud to present Mind Your Own Marketing, so post Tim Parsons. Thanks for joining us on the Mind Your Own Marketing Business Podcast. I'm Tim Barsness, founder of web and mobile development team Fjorge. And today on our show, we will be talking with Mike Ferranti about his marketing technology agency, Bio Genomics. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, can you tell us a little about Biogenomics? Sure. So Biogenomics is a autonomous database marketing technology. Um, we work with what are called omni-channel retail uh, and e-commerce companies. Um, and what we do is we take their consumer data, their customer data, and we turn it into uh, revenue and profits. Um, our mission statement is really simple. It's make success inevitable. Sounds really cool. So you're the um, founder and CEO of Biogenomics. Um, how did you come to start the company? Great question. Um, I think the best answer uh, in a short sentence is by listening to customers. Um, and so even before this company or the company I started before it or the company before that that I started, um, when I was young and handsome, I was a tech and process consultant. Um, and I worked with a lot of brands that these big consulting firms had. And really just listening to the customer was uh, always seemed to be the answer. Um, what does I, listening to the customer mean to you? Well, that's a good question too. Um, I think it's I think it's a combination of personal and professional patience, right? Not trying to rush, you know, getting what you need to know and being patient and listening, you know, sort of rather than talking. Um, and two, I would say there's an emphatic edge to it that's really important where you really try to appreciate, you know, the what it's doing to them, what the problem might be doing to them, what the issues that, you know, you're there to take a look at might be doing to them. Because when you can emphatically listen, um, you inevitably hear more sooner um, and could do a lot better job at uh, solving the problem. What is it about you personally, Mike, that makes you really good at listening to your customers? That's a killer question. Um, probably experience um i think i probably also have a significant amount of empathy uh just as a person and i think that's that's probably a lot of it but i think when you do it enough and when you see the impact of being of really emphatically listening um you know you have better relationships um, you get better results. Life is better. So I think there's a re positive reinforcement loop that comes with it as well. So is your empathy something that you um, you actively work on, or is that something that's just part of who you've always been? Yeah, I would say that was always there. I can remember since I'm a kid. What What is it about your background that makes you empathetic? That's a killer. Man, these are good questions. Um, I would say... You know, I grew up in a in a household maybe that um, lots of people 
and limited resources. Um, I had lots of siblings, and that probably had something to do with it. But um, it might also run in the family. I mean, we had some really successful business people in the family as well. So part nature, part nurture? Yeah, I think so. Okay. As with everything, right? Right, right. <laughs> Here, I thought you were going to give me a clear-cut answer. Um, so... I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious, when, when you're... When you say you're listening to your customers, how do you, how what do you take away? Where do you go with that information that you're gathering? Well, in general, it's usually asking a lot more questions, and whether we're doing that through, you know, a dialogue with them, an interpersonal dialogue with them, or whether we're having that dialogue by looking at data and performing the analytical process on it. It's the same kind of thing, right? So, you know, when we interrogate a customer's database um, or a data set, we learn an awful lot about what's going on in, in their world, in their business, in their category, especially if we see multiple organizations in the category. And that sort of puts us in a different place than if we were there telling them what we think about everything. Right, just sometimes the case. Yeah, totally. Um, so, um, you mentioned that you you were driven to um, start this business. Um, is there anything in your in your professional b- background that also brought you here? Yeah. Um, so many moons ago, I was a software engineer. Um, when I was doing that, it was at a point in time where, I mean, technology wasn't brand new, but sort of the modernization and the internet just cropped up. Um, it was a pretty exciting time. Um, when I was working on the enterprise side for you know, the first and only job I've ever had, um, was databases were becoming at the core of the enterprise and so I just sort of got into it I found I was pretty good at it um, became a database administrator and I you know as a developer and a, de- and a DBA you sort of learn to have a very unique appreciation for how to use data how to m- turn it to value what's possible um, what are prerequisites to getting where you want to be and that all you know, I didn't know it at the time, but that was all very, very uh, useful when it came to solving problems with customer data, you know, 15, 20 years later. Um, I don't necessarily consider um, the traits of your typical software developer as um, those of somebody who would lead an organization. Um, yeah. Now, I do it and you do it. I'm curious, what is it about you that makes you different than other software developers? That's a good question. I I think it probably has to do with communication skills, a little bit different interests perhaps. Um, I think maybe that's changing given that in tech companies today, it's almost a prerequisite. There was that famous example uh, with the Yahoo CEO at the time who... uh, they would only hire somebody that had dev experience at some point. Sure. Yep. And for the longest time in 
traditional businesses, it was common that CEOs had an engineering background. And, you know, so... So, so maybe that, this is just an iteration of engineering? Is that what you're I think at? so, yeah. The engineer, the you know, that engineering mindset is very helpful for problem solving. Totally, and that's the, the role, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you with the communication piece. Um, that's something that I wouldn't necessarily say is naturally my strong suit, but definitely something that I've I've worked really hard at um, throughout my career. Yeah, the the they're they're definitely two very different worlds. I think it would be very challenging to be solving the most complex technical problems and sort of public speaking at the same time. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, because your brain goes somewhere else, right? There are exactly there are um, rarely those who do both, but um, they do exist. Um, yeah. So I want to get get into um, your product a little bit. Um, how is it that you do what you do? Sure. So what we for, let's start with what we do, uh, and then maybe how we do it. So the what we do, again, we we start with a pretty simple data set. Um, but the right data, um, we begin with raw transaction data from an organization. And the reason we start with transaction data is pretty simple. It is the most predictive type of data uh, across the board that always works uh, that we've seen when it comes to um, generating incremental sales or identifying individuals um, that you could sell to. So that's so the data we start So what with. you're saying is in order to sell more, what you should do is look at who you've sold to in the past? Sure. That's that's good way good way to put it. Um, the other thing that you'll see is not just who you sold to in the past, but how different um, your customers potentially are. So most organizations will have this perception that their customer is, and they'll have a narrative. They're young, they're beautiful, they're rich, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> we actually hear that narrative a lot. Yep. Um, but then when you start identifying unique cohorts within the overall customer database, you realize that it breaks out into a handful of larger groups and then maybe a bunch of smaller ones. And so... That gets to sort of the what we do. Um, so we'll take 12 to 15 data points from transactions, basically the data that's on a receipt. Yeah. And we will then roll those each of those transactions up under a unique individual, which is in the digital age that's relatively straightforward. Mm -hmm. uh, although people can buy from multiple email addresses, have multiple accounts change their email addresses, change the postal address, um, make purchases and ship it to a friend or a family member. So there is some variability that still has to be dealt with even online. But when you deal with an omni-channel omni retailer, yep. you will see that it is much, much more complex um, because then we have to bring in things like name, phone number, mobile, email address, um, and there's a lot of variability there. And so the technology has to be able to account for all that variability and do this matching process. Our algorithm is called super match. Yeah. Um, 
and you map you know we tend to match about 85 to 90 percent of all transactions even on a organization with brick and on brick and mortar and online right so that's the first step in how we do it but then what we have to do is take all that data and we do what's called transformation so we have to transform it from 12 or 15 data points that are usually on the receipt into more than 300 uh, derived data points right can you and give an example of how, what that looks like what is it what does sure. a data point on a receipt look like and how do you turn it into something derived sure so on the receipt you might see that uh, that Tim Barnes bought um, you know a pair of pants in January date might have a size might have color uh, other attributes of that product um, and then you might have another receipt where Tim made a purchase and he bought uh, you know some t-shirts a derived data point is when we see those two purchases match them back to Tim and then calculate the number of days in between those purchases and in between all of his purchases and then take some statistics on that we'll find the median interorder purchase time we'll calculate the number of standard deviations between different purchases, right? So is that mm -hmm. is that number moving around a lot? Um, and that is the beginning of the process to start to identify when Tim might buy again. And because we also have uh, the categories that you bought in, we might be able to make a prediction about what category you're likely to buy in next. Got it. So this is all ways that we have to derive data, right? Um, so and there's, there are literally hundreds of, of points like that. So once you have a, a probable next pur purchase date, what do you do with that information? Good question. So the first thing we look to do, uh, whether it's that data point or any other, is make it actionable, right? So we're not, we don't really exist to be a platform where you could do analytics and then go somewhere else and decide what to do next. Um, our first objective is to provide the insight as quickly as possible so that you can go and create a campaign, for example, or make some business decision. Like, should I discount by 30% or 50% when I go to close out? Mm -hmm. right? So we can, have, we can push that data to an individual so that they can make better decisions and act now. Our highest objective is, if we know when you're most likely to buy again, that the system itself will deploy the right offer to that individual at the right time all by itself. Now it would need, of course it would need the content of that message, um, but the system could then act at the individual level to go and get that sale. Got it, interesting. Um, so who, who is a good, a good client for, for you guys? Sure. So that's, I would say the, uh, the right organization that we can help the most is, uh, someone in retail. Typically they're all online and, uh, offline. So omni channel, channel retailers, 
Um, we do have some a fair number that are either exclusively e-commerce or 90% or more e-commerce. Um, but I would say the biggest uh, qualifier would be the brand needs a certain critical mass of data for all of these, for the math to work that we do. Um, and so usually that's around 30,000, 40,000 uh, unique customers on the low end. We've had a few organizations that were digital only uh, where it worked really well and they were somewhere south of that. But generally, you need a certain critical mass for it to, to really do everything that it does. Sure. Got it. Um, so I'm curious, uh, what are some problems that an organization doesn't really know they have? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think they fall into two categories. One is um, they, there's a lot of organizations today that are specifically trying to figure out what uh, CRM is the right one today to help us sort of get more out of our customer database, be more relevant, have greater communications. But then inside of that fairly high-level sort of explanation of what they're looking for, they don't really know what are the specific attributes that would solve the problems that they have. So there's the, the question about what problems are worth solving, and then there are the questions about what are the problems, even if we knew about them, that we have no experience with. Um, the latter, I would say there's, there's one that we, we see very frequently, and that gets to customer potential value, right? So let's break that down. Customer potential value is what a customer could grow into in terms of value over time. And that's important because CRM is what a customer is is the process of growing a customer's value, right? Yep. So they're they're actually highly dependent. Your CRM success is highly dependent upon the potential value of your customer. Does that make sense? Yep. So the reason that's one of the biggest issues is because when you look at any retail database, and this is so common that you know I could say this um, to anyone they've all got one thing in common the percentage of the database that are one-time buyers and we're talking about the buyers only not prospects for the moment but the percentage of one-time buyers is almost always greater than 70 percent and so that means that if you have a million customers in your database or if you have a hundred thousand it's still 70% of the database is not contributing a whole lot. It's the 30% that repeat purchases and goes into stages of loyalty that are more valuable and basically carrying the entire business. So do you focus on the 70% or the 30%? Well, the truth is you have to do both. Um, I would say the one of the other problems that folks don't realize is that First of all, if you don't realize that it's actually 70-30 or 80-20, um, it sort of justifies treating all your customers the same way. However, there's usually a tiny cohort, 15% um, or less, that are the most valuable buyers. We call them MVBs in your entire customer base. And that little cohort is really carrying the vast majority of the profits of that business. 
Yet, most organizations, even today, are doing very little to distinguish that rarefied group of customers that carries the brand. So if you have that information, what do you do with it? Sure. I could give you a couple of sort of easy-to-digest examples. So with your MVBs, um, these are folks that you want to pamper. These are folks that you want to have a differentiated experience for. Now, depending on the size of the organization, that may seem like a great idea or that may seem daunting. Um, they may be, they may have their hands full just having a good enough experience in the first place for everybody. But seeing as the MVBs carry the organization in terms of profitability, the one thing that anybody can do is show a little appreciation, right? Have an appreciation touch and provide some recognition because these are individuals that are very, very unique. As soon as you recognize them, that has a, a potentially profound impact, right? Yep. Um, and, you know, if you just think about it, whether it's employees, peers, family, friends, everybody appreciates a little bit of recognition. Yet most retailers aren't really recognizing their very best customers. So recognition doesn't cost much. It doesn't have to mean discounts or incentives. Um, just say thank you. We realize you're one of our most important customers, um, and we appreciate you. If you could go beyond that and offer limited quantity products um, or specialized experiences, well, that'll only work better at gluing those MVBs down to the brand. Sure. Got it. Um, so let's move on to a couple news stories here. Um, the first one from Target Marketing Mag by Mike uh, is titled, Great Businesses Are Built on Great Customers. Can you tell us about your article, Mike? Sure. Um, very related to some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of companies who, you know, think and talk about going from a good company to a great one. Um, but ultimately, there's little that could be as effective for making a great company than really identifying a great customer. Um, because great customers don't buy once and disappear. A great customer is one that has, they're the right product market fit for what you produce. And a great customer will buy again and again and again. They will tell their friends about you. Um, and the impact that great customers have on the business is pretty dramatic. Given that most organizations only have 15% or so of their customers could be considered great at all, um, the impact on the business of going from 15% great customers to 20% or 30% is it's it's kind of geometric in terms of the effect it has on profitability mm -hmm. because they buy so frequently, at least relative to the norm, right? And so there's there's little that could generate more profit. Primarily because acquiring customers is so expensive, right? It always has been, and it likely always will be. Um, but when it's expensive to acquire a customer, 
a customer who buys again and again and again isn't just more valuable, they're dramatically more profitable. Right. So, um, I mean, essentially, you're, again, looking at the 15% um, or however many percent that, that you find um, that uh, you can be profitable at your acquisition costs. Yeah, that's that's one that's one way to look at it. There there are two others. So since we said that there's a huge population that is one and done, they bought one time and they're not likely to buy again unless something changes. We can then break that group down into smaller segments. When we've looked at the highest potential, those who bought most recently, those who bought across the most categories, we now have multiple signals to identify one-time buyers that we could focus on and get to the first stage of loyalty, which is repeat purchase. Right? Everybody starts as a trial buyer. Moving them into loyalty means getting them to buy a second time. So the one-time buyer population, that, that 70% or so, um, is another source where you can squeeze um, high-value buyers out of and grow them methodically over time. There's a third source and those are customers that you have yet to acquire. In other words, most brands are very happy to see have new customers coming in and spending with them. They're transaction-oriented, and it's been that way for a very long time. But what if we could target our acquisitions so that we don't just acquire more customers, but we acquire more of the right customers. Now that's a strategy that we refer to as stacking the deck. Because if you could stack your customer base with even 10% more MVBs than you would have acquired if you just took whoever you got, um, that has a profound impact on the profitability of the business. So I'm just going to throw some random numbers out there. Which, what it sounds like you're saying is that spending $50 to acquire a customer who has $200 of value is um, money better spent than spending $40 to acquire a customer who has $100 of value. Yeah, and unfortunately, the, the numbers are much more um, extreme in many cases. Okay. Right. Uh, usually what you'll find is you're spending $100 to acquire a customer who is worth a hundred dollars sure right? that happens at scale all the time um, whereas in the same organization we will see that you could spend a hundred or even two hundred and acquire a customer who's maybe worth seven or eight thousand right same products same yep. brand right and so that's what we call MVB acquisition and that's not just customer acquisition in the ways that organizations traditionally have done it. That's sort of changing your point of view a little bit so that you acquire that uniquely valuable customer. Um, and we found over time that there is nothing that can improve your CRM capability beyond features and technology than acquiring a higher potential customer in the first place. Sure. Right, because the best CRM in the world, and the slickest features and the most tech, it can't do anything if the individuals that it's trying to grow the value of lack the means and motivation 
that MVBs have. Got it. Uh, let's go to our second article here, also by Mike, titled, Should You Really Bother With Personalization? Uh, Mike, in reading the article, it looks like the bottom line is um, relevancy is the value in personalization. So not making something necessarily specific, but making it relevant. Now, can, can you help explain why that is, Mike? Sure. Um, it's for a couple of reasons. One is the explosion of digital communications with a lower cost. And the best, the biggest culprit, I would say, is probably email still. You know, when the cost very little to get a message out, um, everything has a positive return. And so you could, quote unquote, get away with a lower quality communication. The caveat to that is until you can't, right? Because sure. unsubscribes, open rates start to decline when you're sort of, as they have always said, blasting your customer base. Um, you know, I've always said, all the years I've been doing this, who, who would deliberately blast their customer given the customers what carries the business? Um, but yet that happens at scale every single day. Um, there are three things that get a customer to respond. Number one is a reasonable expectation that they're going to hear from you in the first place. right? So if you think about junk mail, per se, whether online or offline, um, you know, there's no expectation of receiving the communication. And that's why it's called junk mail. It's like, I didn't ask for this. And you throw it away. Um, folks kind of used to trash banner ads. And the reason is, like, that's not really why I'm here. Um, so it's the expectation of being reached out to. The second thing is the value of it. So you have to answer the question, what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. Right? So now, even if I'm expecting a communication from an organization that I buy from, I need to have some, there's got to be something in it for me, right? Now, that doesn't have to be a sale, but that's an easy example. Another thing that could be meaningful to me is some combination of content that people that buy that product would be interested in, lifestyle information and how the brand fits into that lifestyle. Brands are working more and more at trying to do that today. But then you get to the third uh, question, and that's relevancy, right? Why should I care? Yep. Right? And so relevancy can have many forms. Social proof, um, that's a great little killer app to put into an email. Show your, show your customers what other customers are saying and thinking and how they're rating your products, uh, and you'll make it much easier for them to buy because they want to buy what people like them buy. Totally. Uh, and we are out of time, so that's it for today on the Mind Your Own Marketing Business Podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure was ours. Um, you can find uh, Mike Ferranti by visiting uh, buyergenomics.com, or you can email him directly at mferranti, that's M-F-E-R-R-A-N-T-I, at buyergenomics.com. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. You can download episodes of the program by going to fjordsdigital.com slash mindyourownmarketingbusiness or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio.